This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Vladimir Nabokov's story, Pnin, which was published in The New Yorker in 1953. Now, a secret must be imparted. Professor Pnin was on the wrong train. He was unaware of it, and so was the conductor. The story was chosen by Alexander Hamon, whose own fiction and nonfiction have been appearing in the magazine since 1999. His most recent story collection, Love and Obstacles, was published in 2009. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Deborah. You've said somewhere, I don't know where, that you learned English by reading Nabokov. And it, it seems safe to me to say that he's been very important to you as a fiction writer as well. Why do you feel such an affinity with his work? I loved Nabokov before I ended up in the United States. I still distinctly remember the place on the shelf from which I picked Lolita in the local library. So when I came to the United States and was trying to find a way to write in English, I undertook a project of reading and rereading books in English, and Nabokov was at the top of the list. And so I, I would read Lolita and many of his other books and stories, and I would underline words that I didn't know at first, but there were so many that I started making lists of words to look them up later in the Oxford Dictionary for an Advanced Learner that I had brought. So I continued reading many other books, not just Nabokov, but Nabokov was the target, as it were, or the beacon, rather, that I measured my progress or regress against. And did he seem a different writer to you when you read him in English? Well, he did, in as much as Lolita was written in English. I, you know, I didn't remember exact quotes from the translation that I had read, but I remember the sensation and of being present in the sensory moment all over Lolita and all of his other works. And so I was pursuing that. But you know, one of the things that was blocking me from fully experiencing it was the shortcomings of my vocabulary. So I was pursuing, in some ways, strangely nostalgically, a particular experience of Nabokov while pursuing the English language. And, and how did you first read Pnin? Oh, around that time. This was in the, in the early 90s, I think. I cannot exactly time it in English. And before that, Nabokov hadn't been widely translated in former Yugoslavia. And in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a translation of five books. One of them was written in English. One of them was Pnin. The others were Lolita, Pale Fire, Bind Sinister, and I can't remember what the fifth one was. So I bought this whole set and read it and reread it. And it was about a year, not more than two, before I moved to the United States. Some of his Russian works had been translated, but not many. The piece that you're going to read became the opening chapter of the novel Pnin, which was published in 1957. Can you say a little bit about the, the book as a whole for people who haven't read it? It's in many ways a, a character portrait. Professor Timofey Pnin. There's not much of a plot, but it's a, a story about him as told by the narrator who keeps suggesting that he knows him uh, well and is acquainted with his idiosyncrasies. And toward the end of the book, we find out what their connection is. Nabokov is uh, lauded for his language in English and Russian, and someone who can have a great turn of sentence or phrase. But what is often misperceived is the actual care and insight he might have into his characters, particularly if they are displayed Russians. And Pnin is the prime example of that. Great. Well, we'll talk a little more after the reading. And now here's Alexander Hemon reading Pnin by Vladimir Nabokov. Pnin. The elderly passengers sitting on the north window side of that inexorably moving railway coach 
next to an empty seat and facing two empty ones, was none other than Professor Timofei Pnin. Ideally bald, suntanned, and clean-shaven, he began rather impressively with that great brown dome of his, tortoise shell glasses, masking an infantile absence of eyebrows, apish upper lip, thick neck, and strongman torso in a tightish tweed coat, but ended, somewhat disappointingly, in a pair of spindly legs, now flanneled and crossed, and frail-looking, almost feminine feet. His sloppy socks were of scarlet wool with lilac lozenges. His conservative black oxfords had cost him about as much as all the rest of his clothing, flamboyant guntai included. Prior to the 1940s, during the state European era of his life, he had always worn long underwear, its terminals tucked into the tops of neat silk socks, which were clocked, soberly colored, and held up on his cotton-clad calves by garters. In those days, to reveal a glimpse of that white underwear by pulling up a trouser leg too high would have seemed to Pnin as indecent as showing himself to ladies minus collar and tie, for even when decayed Madame Roux, the concierge of the squalid apartment house in the 16th arrondissement of Paris, where Pnin had lived for a score of years after escaping from Leninized Russia, happened to come up for the rent while he was without his faux col, Prim Pnin would cover his front stud with a chaste hand. All this underwent a change in the heady atmosphere of the new world. Nowadays, at 55, he was crazy about sunbathing, wore sports shirts and slacks, and when crossing his legs would carefully, deliberately, brazenly display a tremendous stretch of bare shin. Thus he might have appeared to a fellow passenger, but except for a soldier asleep at one end and two women absorbed in a baby at the other, Pnin had the coach to himself. Now a secret must be imparted. Professor Pnin was on the wrong train. He was unaware of it, and so was the conductor, already threading his way through the train to Pnin's coach. As a matter of fact, Pnin at the moment felt very well satisfied with himself. When inviting him to deliver a Friday evening lecture at Cremona, some 200 versts west of Wendell, Pnin's academic perch, the vice president of the Cremona Women's Club, a Miss Judith Clyde, had advised our friend that the most convenient train left Wendell at 1.52 p.m., reaching Cremona at 4.17. But Pnin, who, like so many Russians, was inordinately fond of everything in the line of timetables, maps, catalogs, and collected them, helped himself freely to them, with the bracing pleasure of getting something for nothing, took a special pride in puzzling out schedules for himself, had discovered, after some study, an inconspicuous reference mark against a still more convenient train, leaving Wendell at 2.19 p.m., arriving at Cremona 4.32 p.m. The mark indicated that Fridays, and Fridays only, the 2.19 stops at Cremona on its way to a distant and much larger city, graced likewise with a mellow Italian name. Unfortunately for Pnin, his timetable was five years old and in part obsolete. He taught Russian at a Wayndale College, a somewhat provincial institution characterized by an artificial lake in the middle of a landscape campus, by ivied galleries connecting the various halls, by murals displaying recognizable members of the faculty in the act of passing on the torch of knowledge from Aristotle, Shakespeare, and Pasteur, to a lot of monstrously built farm boys and farm girls, and by a huge, active, buoyantly thriving German department, which its head, Dr. Hagen, smugly called, pronouncing every syllable very distinctly, a university within a university. The enrollment in the Russian language course consisted of three students only, Josephine Malkin, whose grandparents had been born in Minsk, 
Charles Macbeth, a graduate student whose prodigious memory had already disposed of ten languages and was prepared to entomb ten more, and languid Eileen Lane, whom somebody had told that by the time one had mastered the Russian alphabet, one could practically read Anna Karamazov in the original. As a teacher, Pnin was far from being able to compete with those stupendous Russian ladies scattered all over academic America who, without having had any formal training at all, managed somehow, by dint of intuition, loquacity, and a kind of maternal bounds to infuse a magic knowledge of their difficult and beautiful tongue into a group of innocent-eyed students in an atmosphere of old Mother Volga songs, red caviar, and tea. Nor did Pnin, as a teacher, even presume to approach the lofty halls of modern scientific linguistics, the temple where in earnest young people are taught not the language itself, but the method of teaching others to teach that method. No doubt Pnin's approach to his work was amateurish and light-hearted, depending as it did on a book of exercises in grammar brought out by the head of the Slavic department in a far greater college than Wendell, a venerable fraud whose Russian was a joke but who would generously lend his dignified name to the products of anonymous drudgery. Pnin, despite his many shortcomings, had about him a disarming old-fashioned charm, which Dr. Hagen, his staunch protector, insisted before Moreau's trustees was a delicate, imported article worth paying for in domestic cash. Whereas the degree in sociology and political economy that Pnin had obtained with some pomp at the University of Prague around 1920 had become by a mid-century doctorate in desuetude, he was not altogether miscast as a teacher of Russian. He was beloved not for any essential ability, but for those unforgettable digressions of his when he would remove his glasses to beam at the past while massaging the lenses of the present. Nostalgic excursions in broken English, autobiographical tidbits, how Pring came to Soedinonie Stati, the United States. Examination on ship before landing, very well. Nothing to declare, nothing, very well. Then political questions. He asks, are you anarchist? I answer, time out on the part of the narrator for a spell of cozy mute mirth. First, what do we understand under anarchism? Anarchism, practical, metaphysical, theoretical, mystical, abstract, individual, social. When I was young, I say, all this had for me signification. So we had a very interesting discussion, in consequence of which I passed two whole months on Ellis Island, abdomen beginning to heave, heaving, narrator convulsed. But there were still better sessions in the way of humor. With an air of coy secrecy, benevolent Pnin, preparing the children for the marvelous treat that he had once had himself, and already revealing, in an uncontrollable smile, an incomplete but formidable set of tawny teeth, would open a dilapidated Russian book at the elegant literate marker he had carefully placed there. He would open the book, whereupon, as often as not, a look of the utmost dismay would alter his plastic features. Open-mouthed feverishly, he would flip right and left, through the volume, and minutes might pass before he found the right page or satisfied himself that he had marked it correctly after all. Usually the passage of his choice came from some old and naive comedy of merchant-class habitus rigged up by Ostrovsky almost a century ago, or from an equally ancient but even more dated piece of trivial Leskovian jollity dependent on verbal contortions. He delivered these stale goods with the rotund gusto of the classical Alexandrinka Theatre in Petersburg, rather than with the crisp simplicity of the Moscow artists. But since to appreciate whatever fun those passages still retained, one had to have not only a sound knowledge of the vernacular, but also a good deal of literary insight. And since his poor little class had neither 
the performer would be alone in enjoying the associative subtleties of his text. The heaving we have already noted in another connection would become here a veritable earthquake. Directing his memory, with all the lights on and all the masks of the mind amiming, toward the days of his fervid and receptive youth in a brilliant cosmos that seemed all the fresher for having been abolished by one blow of history, Prin would get drunk on his private wines as he produced sample after sample of what his listeners politely surmised was Russian humor. Presently the fun would become too much for him. Pear-shaped tears would trickle down his tanned cheeks. Not only his shocking teeth, but an astonishing amount of pink upper gum tissue would suddenly pop out as if a jack-in-the-box had been sprung, and his hand would fly to his mouth while his big shoulders shook and rolled. And although the speech he smothered behind his dancing hand was now doubly unintelligible to the class, his complete surrender to his own merriment would prove irresistible. By the time he was helpless with it, he would have his students in stitches, with abrupt barks of clockwork hilarity coming from Charles, and a dazzling flow of unsuspected lovely laughter transfiguring Josephine, who was not pretty, while Eileen, who was, dissolved in a jelly of unbecoming giggles. All of which does not alter the fact that Pnin was on the wrong train. How should we diagnose Pnin's sad case? He, it should be particularly stressed, was anything but the type of that good-natured German platitude of last century, der Sehstrute Professor, the absent-minded professor. On the contrary, he was perhaps too wary, too persistently on the lookout for diabolical pitfalls, too painfully on the alert lest his erratic surroundings, unpredictable America, inveigle him into some bit of preposterous oversight. It was the world that was absent-minded, and it was Pnin whose business it was to set it straight. His life was a constant war with insensate objects that fell apart or attacked him or refused to function or viciously got themselves lost as soon as they entered the sphere of his existence. He was inept with his hands to a rare degree, but because he could manufacture in a twinkle a one-note mouth organ out of a pea pod, make a flat pebble skip ten times on the surface of a pond, shadowgraph with his knuckles a rabbit complete with blinking eye, and perform a number of other tame tricks that for some reason or other Russians have up their sleeves, he believed himself endowed with considerable manual and mechanical skills. On gadgets he doted with a kind of dazed, superstitious delight. Electric devices enchanted him. Plastics swept him off his feet. He had a deep admiration for the zipper. But after a storm in the middle of the night had paralyzed the local power station, the devoutly plugged-in clock would make nonsense of his morning. The frame of his spectacles would snap in mid-bridge, leaving him with two identical pieces, which he would vaguely attempt to unite, in the hope, perhaps, of some organic marvel of restoration coming to the rescue. The zipper gentleman depends on most would come loose in his puzzled hand at some nightmare moment of haste and despair. And he still did not know that he was on the wrong train. A special danger area in Pnin's case was the English language. Except for such not very helpful odds and ends as the rest is silence, nevermore, weekend, who's who, and a few ordinary words and phrases like eat, street, fountain pen, gangster, the Charleston, and marginal utility, he had no English at all at the time he left France for the States. Stubbornly, he sat down to the task of learning the language of Fenimore Cooper, Edgar Allan Poe, Edison, and 31 presidents. In 1945, at the end of one year of study, he was proficient enough to use glibly terms like wishful thinking and okie-dokie. By 1946, he was able to interrupt his narration with the phrase 
To make a long story short, by the time Truman entered his second term, Plin could handle quite a number of elegant clichés, but otherwise progress seemed to have stopped despite all his efforts, and in 1953 his English was still full of flaws. That autumn, he supplemented the usual courses of his academic year by delivering a weekly lecture in a so-called symposium, Wingless Europe, a survey of contemporary continental culture, directed by Dr. Hagen. All our friends' lectures, including sundry ones he gave out of town, were edited by one of the younger members of the German department. The procedure was somewhat complicated. Professor Plin laboriously translated his own Russian verbal flow, teeming with idiomatic proverbs, into patch English. This was revised by young Miller. Then Dr. Hagen's secretary, a Miss Einslow, typed it out. Then Plin deleted the passages he could not understand. Then he read it to his weekly audience. He was utterly helpless without the prepared text, nor could he use the ancient system of dissimulating his infirmity by moving his eyes up and down, snapping up an eyeful of words, reeling them off to his audience, and drawing out the end of one sentence while diving for the next. Plin's worried eye would be bound to lose its bearings. Therefore, he read his lectures, his gaze glued to his text, in a slow, monotonous baritone that seemed to climb one of those interminable flights of stairs used by people who dread elevators. The conductor, a gray-headed, fatherly person with steel spectacles, placed rather low on his simple, functional nose and a bit of soiled adhesive tape on his thumb, had now only three coaches to deal with before reaching the last one, where Pnin rode. Pnin in the meantime, had yielded to the satisfaction of special Pninian craving. He was in a Pninian quandary. Among other articles indispensable for a Pninian overnight stay in a strange town, such as shoe trees, apples, and dictionaries, his Gladstone bag contained a relatively new black suit he planned to wear that night for the lecture, are the Russian people communist, before the Cremona ladies. It also contained next Monday's symposium lecture, Don Quixote and Faust, which he intended to study the next day on his way back to Wendell, and a paper by a graduate student, Betty Bliss, Dostoevsky and Gestalt Psychology, that he had to read for Dr. Hagen. The quandary was as follows. If he kept the Cremona manuscript, a sheaf of typewriter-sized pages carefully folded down the center so as to fit into a pocket of his coat, on his person, in the security of his body warmth, the chances were, theoretically, that he would forget to transfer it from the coat he was wearing to the one he would wear. On the other hand, if he placed the lecture in the pocket of the suit in the bag now, he would, he knew, be tortured by the possibility of his luggage being stolen. On the third hand, these mental states sprout additional forelimbs all the time. He carried in the inside pocket of his present coat a precious wallet with two ten-dollar bills, the newspaper clipping of a letter he had, with my help, written to the Times in 1945 and then the Yalta Conference, and his certificate of naturalization, and it was physically possible to pull out the wallet if needed in such a way as to fatally dislodge the folded lecture. During the twenty minutes he had been on the train, our friend had already opened his bag twice to play with his various papers. When the conductor reached the car, diligent Pnin was perusing with difficulty Betty's latest effort, which began, when we consider the mental climate wherein we all live, we cannot but notice. The conductor entered, did not awake the soldier, promised the women he would let them know when they were about to arrive, and presently was shaking his head over Pnin's ticket. The Cremona stop had been abolished two years before. Important lecture, cried Pnin. What to do? It's a catastrophe. 
Gravely, comfortably, the gray-headed conductor sank into the opposite seat and consulted in silence a tattered book full of dog-eared insertions. Finally, he said that in a few minutes, namely at 3.8, Prin would have to get off at Whitchurch. This would enable him to catch the four o'clock bus that would deposit him around six at Cremona. I was thinking I gained 12 minutes and now I have lost nearly two whole hours, said Prin bitterly. Upon which, clearing his throat and ignoring the consolation offered by the kind gray head, you'll make it, he collected his stone-heavy bag and repaired to the vestibule of the car to wait there for the confused greenery skimming by to be cancelled and replaced by the definite station he had in mind. Whitchurch materialized as scheduled. A hot, torpid expanse of cement and sun lay beyond the geometrical solids of various clean-cut shadows. The local weather was unbelievably summery for October. Alert, Prin entered the waiting room of sorts with a needless stove in the middle and looked around. In a solitary recess, one could make out the upper part of a perspiring young man who was filling out forms on the broad wooden counter before him. Information, please, said Prin. Where stops four o'clock bus to Cremona? Right across the street, briskly answered the employee without looking up. And where possible to leave baggage? That bag? I'll take care of it. And with the national informality that always nonplussed Pnin, the young man shoved the bag into a corner of his nook. Quittance? queried Pnin, Englishing the Russian for received quittancia. What's that? Number, tried Pnin. You don't need a number, said the fellow, and resumed his writing. Pnin left the station, satisfied himself about the bus stop, and entered the coffee shop. He consumed a ham sandwich, ordered another, and consumed that too. At exactly five minutes to four, having paid for the food, but not for an excellent toothpick, which he carefully selected from a neat little cup in the shape of a pine cone near the cash register, Pnin walked back to the station for his bag. A different man was now in charge. The first had been called home, the new man explained, to drive his wife in all haste to the maternity hospital. He would be back in a few minutes. But I must obtain my valise, cried Pnin. The substitute was sorry, but could not do a thing. It is there, cried Pnin, leaning over and pointing. This was unfortunate. He was still in the act of pointing when he realized that he was claiming the wrong bag. His index wavered. That hesitation was fatal. My bus to Cremona, cried Pnin. There is another at eight, said the man. What was our poor friend to do? Horrible situation. He glanced streetward. The bus had just come. The engagement meant an extra fifty dollars. His hand flew to his right flank. It was there, Slava Bogu, thank God. Very well. He would not wear his black suit, what if so? He would retrieve it on his way back. He had lost, dumped, shed many more valuable things in his day. Energetically, almost lightheartedly, Pnin boarded the bus. He had endured this new stage of his journey for only a few city blocks when an awful suspicion crossed his mind. Ever since he had been separated from his bag, the tip of his left forefinger had been alternating with the proximal edge of his right elbow in checking a precious presence in his inside coat pocket. All of a sudden, he brutally yanked out the folded sheets. They were Betty's paper. Emitting what he thought were international exclamations of anxiety and entreaty, Plin lurched out of his seat. Reeling, he reached the exit. With one hand, the driver grimly milked out a handful of coins from his little machine, refunded him the price of the ticket, and stopped the bus. Poor Pnin landed in the middle of a strange town. 
He was less strong than his powerfully puffed-out chest might imply, and the wave of hopeless fatigue that suddenly submerged his top-heavy body, detaching him, as it were, from reality, was a sensation not utterly unknown to him. He found himself in a damp green park of the formal and funereal type, with the stress laid on somber rhododendrons, glossy laurels, sprayed shade trees, and closely clipped lawns, and hardly had he turned into an alley of chestnut and oak, which the bus driver had curtly told him had led back to the railway station, then that eerie feeling, that tingle of unreality, overpowered him completely. Was it something he had eaten? That pickle with the ham? Was it a mysterious disease that none of his doctors had yet detected? My friend wondered, and I wondered too. I do not know if it has ever been noted before that one of the main characteristics of life is discreetness. Unless a film of flesh envelops us, we die. Man exists only insofar as he is separated from his surroundings. The cranium is a space traveler's helmet. Stay inside or you perish. Death is divestment. Death is communion. It may be wonderful to mix with the landscape, but to do so is the end of the tender ego. The sensation poor Pnin experienced was something very like that divestment, that communion. He felt porous and pregnable. His chest hurt. He was sweating. He was terrified. A stone bench among the laurels saved him from collapsing on the sidewalk. Was his seizure a heart attack? I doubt it. For the nuns, I am his physician, and let me repeat, I doubt it. My patient was one of those singular and unfortunate people who regard their heart, a hollow muscular organ, according to the gruesome definition in Webster's new collegiate dictionary, which Pnin's orphan bag contained with a queasy dread, a nervous repulsion, a sick hate, as if it were some strong, slimy, untouchable monster that one had to put up with, alas. Occasionally, when puzzled by his tumbling and tottering pulse, doctors had examined him more thoroughly, and the cardiograph had outlined fabulous mountain ranges and indicated a dozen fatal diseases that had excluded one another. He was afraid of touching his own wrist. He never attempted to sleep on his left side, even in those dismal hours of the night when the insomniac longs for a third side after trying the two he has. And now, in the park of Whitchurch, Pnin felt what he had felt already on August 10, 1942, and May 18, 1937, and May 18, 1929, and July 4, 1920, that the repulsive automaton he lodged had developed a consciousness of its own, and not only was grossly alive, but was causing him pain and panic. He pressed his poor bald head against the stone back of the bench and recalled all the past occasions of similar discomfort and despair. Could it be pneumonia this time? He had been chilled to the bone a couple of days before in one of those hardy American drafts that a host treats his guests to after the second round of drinks on a windy night. And then suddenly Pnin, was he dying, found himself sliding back into his childhood. This sensation had the sharpness of retrospective detail that is said to be the dramatic privilege of drowning individuals, especially in the former Russian Navy, a phenomenon of suffocation that a veteran psychoanalyst, whose name escapes me, has explained as being the subconsciously evoked shock of one's baptism, which causes an explosion of intervening recollections between the first immersion and the last. It all happened in a flash, but there is no way of rendering it in less than so many consecutive words. Prin came from a respectable, fairly well-to-do St. Petersburg family. His father, Dr. Pavel Prin, an eye specialist of some repute, 
had once had the honor of treating Leo Tolstoy for a case of conjunctivitis. Timofey's mother, a frail, nervous little person with a waspy waist and bobbed hair, was a daughter of the once famous revolutionary Umov, rhymes with Zumov, and of a German lady from Riga. Through his half-soon, Pnin saw her approaching eyes. It was a Sunday in midwinter. He was eleven. He had been preparing lessons for his Monday classes at the first gymnasium when a strange chill pervaded his body. His mother took his temperature, looked at her child with a kind of stupefaction, and immediately called her husband's best friend, the pediatrician Sokolov. He was a small, beetle-browed man with a short beard and a crew cut. Easing the skirts of his frock coat, he sat down on the edge of Timofey's bed. A race was run between the doctor's fat golden watch and Timofey's pulse, an easy winner. Then Timofey's torso was bared, and to it the doctor pressed the icy nudity of his ear and the sandpapery side of his head. Like the flat sole of some monopede, the ear ambulated all over Timofey's back and chest gluing itself to this or that patch of skin and then stomping on to the next. No sooner had the doctor left than Timofey's mother and a robust servant girl with safety pins between her teeth encased the distressed little patient in a straitjacket-like compress. It consisted of a layer of soaked linen, a thicker layer of absorbent cotton, and another of tight flannel with a sticky, diabolical oilcloth, the hue of urine and fever, coming between the clammy pang of the linen next to his skin and the excruciating squeak of the cotton round which the outer layer of flannel was wound. A poor cocoon pupa, Timosha, Tim, lay under a mass of additional blankets. They were of no avail against the branching chill that crept up his ribs from both sides of his frozen spine. He could not close his eyes because his eyelids stung so. Vision was but oval pain with oblique stabs of light. Familiar shapes became the breeding places of evil delusions. Near his bed was a four-section screen of varnished wood with pyrographic designs representing a lily pond, a bridal path felted with fallen leaves, an old man hunched up on a bench, and a squirrel holding a reddish object in its front paws. Timosha, a methodical child, had often wondered what that object could be, a nut, a pine cone, and now that he had nothing else to do, he set himself to solve this dreary riddle, but the fever that hummed in his head drowned every effort in pain and panic. Still more oppressive was his tussle with the wallpaper. He had always been able to see that in the vertical plane a combination made up of three different clusters of purple flowers and seven different oak leaves was repeated a number of times with soothing exactitude. But now he was bothered by the undismissable fact that he could not find what system of inclusion and circumscription governed the horizontal recurrence of the pattern. That such a recurrence existed was proved by his being able to pick out here and there, all along the wall, from bed to wardrobe and from stove to door, the reappearance of this or that element of the series. But when he tried traveling right or left from any chosen set of three inflorescences and seven leaves, he forthwith lost himself in a meaningless tangle of rhododendron and oak. It stood to reason that if the evil designer, the destroyer of minds, the friend of fever, had concealed the key of the pattern with such monstrous care, the key must be as precious as life itself, and when found would regain for Tim his everyday health, his everyday world, and this lucid, alas too lucid, thought forced him to persevere in the struggle. A sense of being late for some appointment as odiously exact as school, dinner, or bedtime, added the discomfort of awkward haste to the difficulties of a quest that was grating into delirium. 
the foliage and the flowers, with none of the intricacies of their warp disturbed, appear to detach themselves in one undulating body from their pale blue background, which in its turn lost its papery flatness and dilated in depth till the spectator's heart almost burst in response to that expansion. He could still make out through the autonomous garlands certain parts of the nursery more tenacious of life than the rest, such as the lacquered screen, the gleam of a tumbler, the brass knobs of his bedstead, but these interfered even less with the oak leaves and rich blossoms than would the reflection of an inside object in a window pane with the outside scenery perceived through the same glass. And although the witness and victim of these phantasms was tucked up in bed, he was in accordance with the twofold nature of his surroundings, simultaneously seated on a bench in a green and purple park. During one melting moment, he had the sensation of holding at last the key he had sought, but coming from very far, a rustling wind, its soft volume increasing as it ruffled the rhododendrons, confused whatever rational pattern Timofey Penin's surroundings had once had. He was alive, and that was sufficient. The back of the bench against which he still sprawled felt as real as his clothes, or his wallet, or the date of the great Moscow fire, 1812. A gray squirrel sitting on comfortable haunches on the ground before him was sampling a peach stone. The wind paused and presently stirred the foliage again. The seizure had left him a little frightened and shaky, but he argued that had it been a real heart attack, he would have surely felt a good deal more unsettled and concerned, and this roundabout piece of reasoning completely dispelled his fear. It was now 4.20. He blew his nose and trudged back to the station. The initial employee was back. Here's your bag, he said cheerfully. Sorry you missed the Cremona bus. At least, and what dignified irony our unfortunate friend tried to inject into that, at least. I hope everything is good with your wife. She'll be all right. Have to wait till tomorrow, I guess. And now, said Pnin, where is located the public telephone? The man pointed with his pencil as far out and sidewise as he could without leaving his lair. Pnin, bag in hand, started to go, but he was called back. The pencil was now directed streetward. Say, see those two guys loading that truck? They're going to Cremona right now. Just tell them Bob Horn sent you. They'll take you. Some people, and I'm one of them, hate happy endings. We feel cheated. Harm is the norm. Doom should not jam. The avalanche stopping in its tracks a few feet about the cowering village behaves not only unnaturally, but unethically. Had I been reading about this mild old man instead of writing about him, I would have preferred him to discover upon his arrival at Cremona that his lecture was not this Friday, but the next. Actually, however, he not only arrived safely, but was in time for dinner, a fruit cocktail to begin with, mint jelly with the anonymous meat course, chocolate syrup with the vanilla ice cream, and soon afterward surfeited with sweets, wearing his black suit and juggling three papers, all of which he had stuffed into his coat so as to have the one he wanted among the rest thus thwarting mischance by mathematical necessity, he sat on the chair near the lectern while, at the lectern, Judith Clyde, an angel's blonde in aquarion, with large flat cheeks stained a beautiful candy pink and two bright eyes basking in blue lunacy behind the rimless pince-nez, presented the speaker. Tonight, she said, the speaker of the evening, this, by the way, is our third Friday night, Last time, as you'll remember, we all enjoyed hearing what Professor Moore had to say about agriculture in China. Tonight, we have here, I am proud to say, the Russian-born and citizen of this country, Professor, now comes a difficult one, I am afraid, Professor Pernin, 
I hope I have it right. He hardly needs any introduction, of course, and we are all happy to have him. We have a long evening before us, a long and rewarding evening, and I'm sure you would all like to have time to ask him questions afterwards. Incidentally, I am told his father was Dostoevsky's family doctor, and he has traveled quite a bit on both sides of the Iron Curtain. Therefore, I will not take up your precious time any longer and will only add a few words about our next Friday lecture in this program. I'm sure you will all be delighted to know that there is a grand surprise in store for all of us. Our next lecture is the distinguished poet and prose writer Miss Linda Laysville. We all know she has written poetry, prose, and some short stories. Miss Laysville was born in New York. Her ancestors on both sides fought on both sides in the Revolutionary War. She wrote her first poem before graduation. Many of her poems, three of them at least, had been published in response a collection of a hundred love lyrics by American women. In 1922, she published her first collection, Remembered Music. In 1924, she received the cash prize offered by... But Pnin was not listening. A faint ripple stemming from his recent seizure was holding his fascinated attention. It lasted only a few heartbeats, with an additional systole here and there, lost harmless echoes, and was resolved in demure reality as his distinguished hostess invited him to the lectern. But while it lasted, how limpid the vision was. In the middle of the front row of seats, he saw one of his Baltic aunts wearing the pearls and the lace and the blonde wig she had worn at all the performances given by the great ham actor Khodotov, whom she had adored from afar before drifting into insanity. Next to her, shyly smiling, sleek, dark head inclined, gentle brown gaze shining up at Pnin from under velvet eyebrows, sat a dead sweetheart of his fanning herself with her program. Murdered, forgotten, unrevenged, Incorrupt, immortal, many old friends were scattered throughout the dim hall among more recent people, such as Miss Clyde, who had modestly regained the front seat, Vanya Bedniashkin, shot by the Reds in 1919 in Odessa, because his father had been a liberal, was gaily signaling to his former schoolmate from the back of the hall. And in an inconspicuous situation, Dr. Pavel Pnin and his anxious wife, both a little bird but on the whole wonderfully recovered from their obscure dissolution, look at their son with the same life-consuming passion and pride that they had looked at him with that night in 1912 when, at a school festival commemorating Napoleon's defeat, he had recited, a bespectacled lad all along the stage, a poem by Pushkin. The brief vision was gone. Old Miss Herring, retired professor of history, author of Russia Awakes, 1922, was bending across one or two intermediate members of the audience to compliment Miss Clyde on her speech while from behind that lady another twinkling old party was thrusting into her field of vision a pair of withered, soundlessly clapping hands. That was Alexander Hemon reading Pnin by Vladimir Nabokov. It was published in The New Yorker in 1953 and became part of the novel Pnin, which was published in 1957 and is available now in paperback from Vintage. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, 
a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So, Sasha, when Penin appeared in The New Yorker in 1953, Nabokov was also working on Lolita at the time, and he referred to this story as a brief, sunny escape from Lolita's intolerable spell. Do you think of this story as sunny? I do. Well, I mean, by Russian standards, you know. <laughs> um, by the standards of Siberia, it is sunny, very sunny. <laughs> but Penin is, you know, unfortunate, but he's also, he's a lovable human being. He does not expose the the sinister side of human nature or human um, behavior. And he has this complicated innocence. He's innocent because he doesn't fully understand America. There's a moment in the book when he declares that he cannot tell a difference between advertisements in magazines and the real stories. <laughs> but at the same time... He's probably time, not you know, alone in that. I'm, I know. I have the same problem still after many years of living here. <laughs> But he's also complicated because he has an experience of a displaced person who wandered around, who was deprived of the past and access to the past, who's tormented not so much by nostalgia, but the inability to practice nostalgia in any kind of romantic way so that his family emerges before his eyes while he's reading a lecture at Cremona College and so on. So he's, um, he's someone who you would want to meet and spend time with, unlike Humbert Humbert. Right. Well, some of his nostalgia is quite jolly, you know, when he's reading those passages he remembers and loves to his class. Right, yeah. He, there is a Svetlana Boim who teaches at Harvard. He, she wrote a book called The Future of Nostalgia, and she makes a distinction between reflective nostalgia and restorative nostalgia. Restorative nostalgia is a nationalist project usually, you know, restoring the greatness of this and that collective nation. This is, this is what Putin is doing right now. Whereas reflective nostalgia is private and personal and is organized around moments and fragments and depends on the understanding that what was lost can never be restored. So it slips into poetry and, and lyricism and storytelling and so on. Penin is used as a lens or as a catalyst for Nabokov to conjure up such beautiful moments. That first flashback that Penin has when he, he flashes back to the moment in his childhood when he's feverish and he's studying the wallpaper looking for some pattern in it, some logic to it. Why do you think that that is this all-important memory that's at the center of this story? I guess it's a moment of increased sensitivity that Penin still possesses in his own confused, innocent way. But Nabokov, there's always a meta-narrative aspect of it. And I think part of it is Nabokov challenging the reader to find patterns in this chaotic life of, of Penin's, because Penin is unable to establish a pattern or a trajectory that could be followed. It is also the moment, as I said, at which... Penin is particularly sensitive and his presence in the world is particularly intense. So it becomes a marker of a kind of acquisition of consciousness, except the consciousness is confused, Peninianly. Why does he get so confused at that moment? He's on a journey and he's reached a point where he thinks he just can't get to where he's going. And instead of going forward, he suddenly goes back. Well, it complies with the, the essence of Penin, who's always lost, who's always going the wrong 
way, who never fully grasps the reality around him, who's looking for patterns that don't really exist in the end because the patterns are American, not Russian. And so he operates in a space that is not quite parallel to the space of America, but rather it is lost. His space is lost in the space of America. He can never unify that space in time. And this moment of his feverish childhood illness suggests that it's not just a matter of America, but also a matter of Pninian essence. He was always like that. Nabokov was a little, I think, well, he gave contradictory stories about Pnin and what he right. thought of him. When he first sent this this particular chapter to the New Yorker, he said of Pnin, he's not a very nice person, but he is fun. Then later, when he was trying to sell the whole book, he, he wrote this sort of pan to Pnin as, as a man of great moral courage, a pure man, a scholar, and a staunch friend, serenely wise, faithful to a single love. He never descends from a high plane of life characterized by authenticity and integrity. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to sell his book. But at the same time... Oh, he was something. Wasn't do, he? <laughs> do you buy it? <laughs> no. But I do think, I, you know, he's describing as not a nice person. Maybe he had conceived him that way. What happens in writing, and I, of course I cannot generalize, but it's just my suspicion, is that sometimes you start writing with an idea about a character, and then as you write, you start loving the character in a way that is not related to the initial idea. They just become themselves in the process of narration and you get attached to them even if they're not perfect even if they are you know foolish or even evil and that may have happened to <laughs> Nabokov in that process so he was became more fond of um, Pnin that he had expected. As, as time went on as he wrote him more right. yeah there's some overlap obviously between Pnin's life and Nabokov's he was a, a Russian emigre he taught at Wellesley and Cornell in the 40s, and this this Wendell College is presumed to be a sort of stand-in for Cornell. Right. And sometimes people say that Pnin is based on a fellow professor who was there at the time, but there's also... Well, there's some, some aspects of it, you know, the Russianness of it, but of course the narrator is also a stand-in for Nabokov. The, the thing with Nabokov mm-hmm. and many other writers is that you are many characters in your book. You spread yourself thin and wide because you are present in every character you write. It's always coming from some part or corner of your mind. And this is, I suppose, a, a pleasure writing. But it's also that for Nabokov, I was thinking about this lately for whatever reason, he always marks his territory as autonomous. It is his imagination that defined this world. It is never descriptive. It is always marked in the sentence, in the turn of the phrase, in the sensibility, in the rhythms, in the sense of humor, and then finally in the presence of some narrator who could always be connected with Nabokov or Nabokov in quotation marks, the authorial presence, so that everyone knows that this was not just a description of some reality that was imported into literature, that it was built on the spot. And so he may have used some experiences or details or notes that he collected by being at Cornell, including his tours and reading at various colleges, but it's more complicated than that. He's everyone in that, at least all of the Russians in that book are, they're all Nabokovian. Just to get back to to what you brought up, the narrator in this story. Now, when we start the story, we go for almost half the story, reading it in the third person, thinking this is a sort of close third person narrative. We were aware of Pnin's thoughts and feelings. Then suddenly we get this one sentence where he drops in that phrase where he says a newspaper clipping of a letter he had with my help written to the Times. We've had no my before this or no I, no no me. 
but we had our friend before that, and so then the the read is also implicated. That somehow yeah, we've had a, a collective we, but we've had right. no no individual. <laughs> and suddenly this person sneaks in, and then later he says he's Penin's doctor. Right now, of course, Penin's doctor wasn't along for this trip and wouldn't have known anything. So, right. what are we supposed to think about this narrator? Well, it's an Abakovian sleight of hand. He's not his physician. He's someone who will end up taking up his academic position later. There's a story by Nabokov called Cloud Castle Lake. It starts with a sentence, one of my representatives, the narrator says, Vasily Ivanovich, wins a trip on a raffle of Russian refugees in Berlin in the 30s. But this phrase, one of my representatives, at the end of the story is used beautifully. He, uh, Vasily Ivanovich is tortured by Germans on that trip, and then he asks this narrator to let him go from humanity by implication. And then the last sentence of the story is, so I let him go. And so at first it looks like he's, you know, Vasily Ivanovich is just this Russian the narrator knows. But by the end of the story, there's the hierarchy, authorial hierarchy has been established. Vasily Ivanovich is the representative of the narrator who's the representative of Nabokov. And he's playing the same game here. He does it so often. It's an aesthetic, an ethic, not just a, a mere narrative strategy. And he does the same thing here. He, retroactively, the fact that he says, our friend, the moment he says, I am his physician, then, you know, it's this kind of intimacy between the reader and the narrator while we are together laughing at Pnin. And so he implicates the reader in that moment, but he also connects Pnin to himself while splitting himself from Pnin in a sense that we cannot claim now reasonably that Pnin is Nabokov's representative solely because there's the narrator who's also his representative. And suddenly there's more space for establishing the character of Pnin and also more space, narrative space, between the, the reader and the narrator and Pnin. And the story, the storytelling expands that way. It's not just a two-way street, but rather a square. Mm -hmm. Well, we have this narrator who's telling a story, which we realize at a certain point can't necessarily be the truth because this character of the narrator wouldn't have witnessed these events. Well, that, that doesn't logically follow. It's that it's not verifiable. It doesn't mean it can be true. It's just it's not verifiable. But this is the essence of fiction. So that he could surmise knowing Pnin and his essence and his characteristics and his manners and his language, and he may have witnessed him. So he reassembled him, presumably, the narrator from the parts that are truthful right. into a combination that is not verifiable. Right. But he inhabits him, and at the same time, he's being inhabited by Nabokov. In fact, the narrator later in the book is called Vladimir N., yeah? Right. Yeah, that's another thing. There's so many Vladimirs and Vs in Nabokov's stories. Victor, Vasily, Vladimir, V, and so on. They're all over the place. <laughs> There's always a V. You mentioned earlier that he was on a plane with Humbert Humbert. Now, Humbert Humbert is, is a less likable character. There's overlap between Pnin and Humbert Humbert. Do you think that in, in Nabokov's mind, he's taking a break from this darkness of Humbert to write someone more lovable, or do you think they're more connected than that? Humbert, Humbert, he's so devious and hyper-intelligent. One important aspect of narration in Lolita is seduction, both Humbert seducing Lolita or thinking that he's seducing rather than raping Lolita, but also seducing the reader to his side to profess his you know, innocence. Whereas Prin, he doesn't have that position of in relation to the reader where he can seduce the reader. But the narrator is playing this game by, to some extent, mocking Pnin. He's establishing his superiority in, in relation to Pnin and implicating the reader 
in you know feeling that same superiority. This is why Pnin is so lovable and, and fun and funny, but it's also so inferior to the narrator, mm-hmm. both in terms of narrative hierarchy, but also in, in the world of the story. He's the one who loses the job. And why isn't he allowed to tell his own story? Humbert is. It's a different mode of narrative agency in Pnin. He exposes America by failing to relate to it, whereas Humbert Humbert in his diabolical intelligence, he sees through it and diagnoses it by looking at it from a particularly perverse point of view. Pnin gets to that final scene and he looks out at the audience and sees all of these friends and family members, many of them dead. Why do they appear to him then? Because I think that's the dominant reality. If what was lost can ever be retrieved, then the only way to relate to it is to insert it in the present reality, as it were. In other words, everything around him is not sovereign unto itself, as far as he's concerned, but rather is somehow reflective of his lost past by comparison or by hallucination. So the main characteristic of America, in many ways, for Plin, is that it is not Russia. You know, mourning requires rituals of return in various ways necessary for the healing to happen. But the rituals of return are impossible for someone who's so thoroughly displaced as Pnin or Nabokov, for that matter. Everything up to this moment, in some ways, is a fantasy of the past. Do you think that the language in Pnin is, you know, as rich and complicated as in the other works of Nabokov? I do. I mean, I was just breaking my tongue reading it. It long, winding, convoluted sentences where, you know, clauses flow from uh, one another and but at the same time you always know what it is about i think what plin allowed him is to linger on the moments because plin doesn't have much agency as a person but also as a character in that he's not part of any kind of plot he doesn't have to resolve big problems and even if he did he can't resolve any problems or solve any problems so that allows Nabokov to spend time with Pnin and, you know, describe his socks and shoes and his dome and the way he, in various ways in which he's confused about various things. It allows Nabokov to pay more attention to the character. Now, Humbert Humbert pays attention to himself, but it's also, it's a false representation. He's he's recruiting witnesses to his side, Humbert Humbert, whereas Pnin, in his innocence, just stands there and for observation. In some ways, he's like a butterfly. For Nabokov, you know, he pins him down and then looks at him for a long time. Well, thank you so much, Sasha. Thank you. Introducing Kindle Voyage from Amazon, passionately crafted for readers. Our most advanced e-reader ever, it features a brilliantly crisp display, remarkably thin design, effortless page turning, and light that adjusts with you. It's intuitive, simple, and goes beyond a book. Order your Kindle Voyage today. You will travel in a land of marvels. Alexander Hemon is the author of The Book of My Lives and The Lazarus Project. His new novel, The Making of Zombie Wars, will come out in May. You can download 90 previous episodes of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com. Subscribers to the magazine can access the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. In the digital edition, you can hear the short stories in the magazine read by their authors. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.